We are in the middle of a sermon series right now that we've entitled, Really? Exclamation point, exclamation point, question mark. And the idea behind the sermon series is that when you look through Scripture, you look at all these people that God chooses to use to build His kingdom, to rescue His people, and it's just a bunch of misfits. And so inevitably, uh, we are left with this um, question in our minds, which is, really? Can you believe that God chose to use that person? And really, this ought to be good news for us because we're all in that category. We're all in the category of people who God uses and chooses despite our failures and our flaws. And so we started off by looking the first week at someone who was functionally a murderer, the Apostle Paul, who celebrated uh, the persecution and killing of Christians, and yet God chose to use him to build his kingdom. The next week we looked at Peter, who was a bit of a bumbler, and we saw that he was uh, somewhat boastful and then didn't follow through on his boasts, and yet God chose to use him as well. Last week, Jeff took a look at uh, David, who obviously was an adulterer, betrayed one of his good friends, and again, we're left answering or asking that question, really, can God use those kinds of people? Today, we're going to be looking at someone who is a bit of a coward. Now, in just a moment, we're going to begin today's sermon with a scene from the old TV show Seinfeld, and in the clip that we're going to watch, George Costanza, if you're familiar with this character, has just attended his girlfriend Robin's son's birthday party in order to try to win her over. His plans quickly go awry, however, when a small grease fire breaks out in the kitchen, and in his panic, he knocks down everyone in his way, including Robin's son, her mother, an elderly woman with a walker, a clown, and in his rush to get out and save himself, he knocks all these people down. Fortunately, the birthday clown puts out the fire with a shoe. So we're going to pick up the scene in just a moment where George stands outside after the fire and he tries to explain his actions. But before we begin, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I don't know why all these people are here this morning. Father, there are different motivations, different reasons for for their presence. Um, Father, for some people it may be guilt, for some people it may be a desire to try to earn your affection, for other people it may be to try to jumpstart some aspect of their life. Father, who knows why they're here? But Father, it is my prayer today that you would let no one leave this place this morning without having had a life-changing encounter with you, the living God. Father, I pray that you would do this not only for your good and for your glory, Father, but for the good of your people, Father, for the good of your children. We pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Most of us would agree, I think, that right now we live in a world that is a bit unmoored in terms of morality. And despite that reality, I still can't think of anybody who admires cowardice, thank goodness. In Judges chapter 6, we're going to be introduced to someone in just a moment who may not entirely be a coward, but at the bare minimum, they're at least fearful, they're insecure. Many of you are familiar with this character from Scripture named Gideon. Now, in just a minute, I'm going to read Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. But just to catch you up on the story, Israel has been oppressed by all these different people groups. It's the result of their idolatry. They're living in fear. We're going to get into this in just a moment. God shows up, and He calls Gideon to be the person that leads the Israelites to freedom and to overthrow this yoke of oppression. And there's this wonderful story about how God basically gets Gideon to call all these people together. He gets 32,000 Israelites. They're going to go to fight against the Midianites, but then he whittles that number down to about 12,000. And then from 12,000, he whittles them down even further to 300. And then miraculously, God uses this group of 300 men and Gideon to overthrow the yoke of the Midianites. But 
before, we're not going to read that entire story. I'm just going to read some sections of it. And so we're going to begin here in Judges chapter 6, verses 11 through 16, where God essentially confronts uh, Gideon. Let's start here in verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. There is so much here in this story of Gideon, what he believes about God, what he believes about himself. What are we going to take away this morning, however, from the story of Gideon? Let's begin first by looking at Gideon's world, the world in which he's living. The book of Judges is a fascinating look into the cycle of idolatry and oppression. In fact, we have a a picture up here on the screen that, that sort of paints this sort of cycle. That's one of the key terms or themes of the book of Judges, idolatry, which then leads to chaos and slavery. Eventually, as they're enslaved and experience this chaos, they cry out in repentance, and then God sends a deliverer. You see this theme over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges, and frankly, we see it elsewhere also. We don't just see it in the lives of the Israelites. That cycle ought to sound familiar because it's not dissimilar to the cycles of our own lives as well. Just prior to the introduction of Gideon is the story of Deborah and Barak in Judges 4 and 5. We're told in chapter 4 that Deborah is a prophetess and that she's essentially functioning as the prime minister over Israel. During that time, the time of her rule, Israel has fallen back into idol worship and as a result, Their idolatry has led to a state of military and political oppression by some of the Canaanite groups around them. God eventually delivers Israel through an unlikely confederation of Deborah, the prime minister, a soldier named Barak, and then a non-Israelite woman named Jael who kills Sisera, the captain of the Canaanite armed forces. It's a great story. And that victory was ultimately accomplished, as Judges 5 reveals, not by Israel's military might but instead by an unexpected and miraculous storm that bogged down Sisera's 900 chariots in the Jezreel Valley at the foot of Mount Tabor. You can go look at it. It's a great story. The next time we read about this place, the Jezreel Valley, is here in the story of Gideon in chapter 6. But somewhat jarringly, as we read this story, we don't read that the valley is filled with the rusted ruins of Sisera's iron chariots as a reminder to God's faithfulness, a reminder to God's victory. Instead, we read that the Jezreel Valley is once again filled with the enemies of God's people. This time, a host of Midianites who have been oppressing the Israelites so severely that in chapter 6, we read the following in verse 2, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Verse 6, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So, presumably, the only world that Gideon knew was a world of fear, a world of oppression, a world 
of poverty in which his people lived in terror, cowering in the mountains to avoid being killed or enslaved by the Midianites. That's the context of Gideon's world. It's the context of this story. Let me pause here for just a moment and discuss this particular situation and this pattern. We read at the beginning of the Gideon narrative, at the beginning of Judges 6, that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That theme comes up over and over again throughout the book of Judges. And each time we read that phrase in the book of Judges, it means the same thing. It means that the Israelites had begun worshiping the idols of the surrounding culture. And the result each time was oppression and slavery. Now, even though this account happened 3,300 years ago, I would argue that we are no different in the year 2024. We have the same exact issues at our heart levels. When we turn from the Lord and worship the idols of our surrounding culture, we also experience oppression. We also experience slavery. Let me give you a very current and relevant example. Recently, I read an article by Ted Gioia entitled The State of Culture 2024, in which he addresses what this cycle looks like for our particular moment. He begins by talking about how art has been swallowed up by entertainment. You can see this on this, the image on the screen. Art is swallowed up by entertainment. And then entertainment is swallowed up by distractions. So think TikTok, think Reels, all these different things that just are distractions for us. He then talks about how that digital distraction by design leads to addiction. The tech companies know this. But how the final state is anhedonia, anhedonia. I'm going to read a quote from his article. Here's what he has to say about this phenomenon. Here's where the science gets really ugly. The more addicts rely on these stimuli, the less pleasure they receive. At a certain point, this cycle creates anhedonia, the complete absence of enjoyment in an experience supposedly pursued for pleasure. That seems like a paradox. How can pursuing pleasure lead to less pleasure? But that's how our brains are wired, perhaps as a protective mechanism. At a certain point, addicts still pursue the stimulus, but more to avoid the pain of dopamine deprivation. People addicted to painkillers have the same experience. Beyond a certain level, opioid dependence actually makes the pain worse. So part of what we see here, the point is for Gideon, the point is for us, that our, in, our idols inevitably enslave us. We, we actually know this at a visceral level. We've experienced it time and time again ourselves. Whether those idols are related to social media or to working out or to pursuing pleasure in a thousand different kinds of ways, our idolatry ultimately makes us miserable. It makes us hollow. Our idols actually make us less human. Eventually, our idols enslave and destroy us. And take note of this, because if taking care of yourself doesn't motivate you, maybe taking care of others will. Our idolatry doesn't just enslave us and destroy us. It often destroys the very people that we love the most. What's at stake is not just our own health and survival, but it's the health and survival of the people that we're charged with caring for, taking care of. One more thing about Gideon's world. The rampant idolatry doesn't just exist amongst the Canaanites. We expect that. It doesn't just exist among the Israelites at large. Idolatry exists in Gideon's own family. As we'll read in just a moment, there's an altar to Baal and an Asherah pole on his father's property. Here's what Tim Keller has to say about this idolatry. The Israelites had not abandoned the worship of God 
for idols. They had combined the worship of God with idols. Let that sink in for just a moment. They worshiped God formally, but in fact, their lives revolved around agricultural idols if they were farmers, or commerce idols if they were business people, or sex and beauty idols, and so on and so forth, before they can throw off the enemies around them, that is the Midianites, they have to throw off the enemies among them. Many of us in this room are trying to live good lives. We're trying to follow God and be faithful to Him. Many of us go to church, we send our kids to youth group or to uh, vacation Bible school in the summer times, we send them to Christian schools, maybe even homeschool them in order to try to keep them safe. But one message that comes through loud and clear from the story of Gideon is that we would do well to look for idols, not just in the surrounding culture, but in our own homes as well. I promise you that they are there, hiding in plain sight, and they're harming you, and they're harming the people that you love the most. As Keller eloquently states, before we throw off the enemies around us, we must throw off the enemies from among us. So Gideon's world is a world of fear and oppression brought about by rampant idolatry, and into this world God arrives and He calls Gideon to set His people free. We just look at Gideon's world, now let's take a look at Gideon himself. In particular, let's look at his flaws. Now again, as I mentioned a little while ago, over the last month we've looked at various flawed people that God calls to serve Him. We looked at the Apostle Paul who participated in and celebrated the persecution and even murder of Christians, and yet God chooses to use them. We looked at Peter and his overt failures of boasting and even betrayal. Last week, Jeff took a look at David's adultery and the murder of one of his faithful soldiers, Uriah. Again, God uses these broken, flawed people again and again. Gideon's no different. In some way, Gideon's flaws are maybe less obvious, but it's maybe accurate to say that they're spread out a bit more. They're present, nevertheless. For one thing, it's very likely that Gideon as his father, is also a syncretist. That means he too would have combined the worship of God with the worship of both Baal and Asherah. I think we can safely assume that because at the time of the angel's appearance, his father's idols are still standing, and yet when he speaks with the angel of the Lord, Gideon demonstrates that he at least knows some of the stories of the Exodus. For the Canaanites, Baal was the storm god who brought rain. So in a farming community where good crops were dependent upon rainfall, you can see why staying on Baal's good side was important. Asherah, on the other hand, was a fertility goddess. In an agrarian community where flocks meant wealth, and at a time when having a large family meant safety, keeping Asherah happy would have meant security in a chaotic world. Now, usually, the worship of Baal and Asherah took the form of an out-of-control UGA frat party. I'll let you you can just Google that yourself. While Baal worship by itself was often associated with child sacrifice. So it's not hard to see why the worship of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, was incompatible with the worship of these other gods. And yet, that's exactly what the Israelites had been doing. That's precisely what Gideon had been doing, and yet God chooses him. This ought to resonate with many of us. The best of us are half-hearted in our worship of God. We worship God and money, or we worship God and power. 
many of us worship God and our children. This is a good place to be reminded of Tim Keller's definition of idolatry. Idolatry is when we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. Again, we, make it a, we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. In fact, oftentimes what we do is we actually take God and treat Him like He's a genie in a lamp, and we rub the genie in the lamp so maybe He'll bless the power we desire, the pleasure we desire, the money we desire, the good family we desire. And yet, despite our idolatry, God has chosen us, you and me, to lead. Your leadership may be in your friend group, it may be in your home, it may be in the community, and you may think that you're disqualified because of your flaws and because of your infidelity, but you are not. God graciously chooses and uses us despite our brokenness. That ought to be good news. Now, let me take one moment, and I want to look at one more of Gideon's flaws. Gideon not only has an idolatry problem, almost definitely, he also has a courage problem. I opened the sermon today with this clip of George Costanza trampling over women and children and clowns in an attempt to save himself at the expense of others. To be fair, it doesn't seem that Gideon is quite that bad. In fact, it may be unfair to call him a coward at all. It may be more fair to say that he is insecure, he is fearful. Growing up in the ever-present shadow of a cruel and oppressive enemy, who wouldn't be? When we're first introduced to Gideon in verse 11 of chapter 6, we read that he is threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. This image gives us an external clue about what is going on in Gideon's internal world. Wheat is usually threshed on the top of a hill so that the wind will separate the wheat from the chaff. Now, a wine press is not only not on the top of a hill, it's usually below ground level. Just to give you an idea of what we're talking about here, recently an ancient wine press was discovered in Israel that was over six feet deep and eight feet wide. And so when we see this scene, we need to remember that Gideon is hiding in a hole in the ground. And then when the angel of the Lord speaks, we get another clue about this theme of fear in the story of Gideon. In verse 12, we read this, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Hebrew word that we see translated as mighty is the word gibor. That word can also be translated as brave. It ultimately points to the inner being of a person. You can just imagine Gideon's response to this declaration of his bravery. Maybe you didn't notice, but I'm threshing wheat in a hole in the ground. I'm anything but brave. If we fast forward in the story just a bit, we see that Gideon after some reassuring, believes that this messenger either is Yahweh or is from him. The angel of the Lord then gives Gideon his first assignment to tear down his father's altar to Baal and his Asherah pole. To give Gideon some credit, he obeys God, but his transformation to the mighty warrior is far from complete. If you take a look at the end of this account in verse 27, you'll read, so Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him, but because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople. He did it at night rather than in the daytime. So tearing down the altar to Baal and the Asherah pole was no insignificant feat. I have no doubt that took serious resolve on Gideon's part. But as we read at the end of verse 27, he did it at night because he was afraid. He was afraid of his family. He was afraid of the townspeople. And he wasn't incorrect in his assumption 
In fact, when everyone woke up in the morning and saw and heard what he had done, they wanted to kill him. But instead of bravely owning his own actions and telling them about the angel of the Lord's appearance, Gideon seems to be hiding once again. He's nowhere to be found. One final example of Gideon's fear and insecurity. In chapter 7, God has Gideon put together this army with which to attack the Midianites, and Gideon knows that God is about to send him and his men into battle. But in verse 8 through 11, we read the following, "'Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, "'Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah.'" And listen to what they're saying. Afterwards, you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. Clearly, Gideon is afraid because he takes God up on his offer. And what he hears when he does so in the midst of his recon, what he hears empowers him, not only to attack the Midianites with only 300 men, but what he hears also causes him to fall down in worship of the one true God. Here's that account. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. Is Gideon a coward? Maybe. Does he struggle with fear and insecurity? Absolutely, but so do we. We often hide our faithfulness to God, obeying Him in secret. Most of us don't know how to show up in a hostile culture, and so we keep our mouths shut, telling ourselves that discretion is the better part of valor, and yet God still uses us. He still shows us grace. That leads us to our final point. This is a story about Gideon, but mostly it's a story about how God relates to broken, fearful people. Let's take a moment. Let's look at Gideon's God. In verse 6, we read the following. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Most commentators, Keller included, makes the point that their cry for help wasn't actual repentance, but was just a panicked request to be rescued from the consequences of their sin. That ought to sound familiar. God graciously responds anyway. In verse 8, we see that He first sends them a prophet. Through this prophet, God reminds them of who He is. I'm not the one, the God, who rescued you out of Egypt. He also reminds them of who they are and how they've gotten to where they are at that moment. We would do well to remember those truths as well. The story goes on, but interestingly, we're never told how the people respond to the prophet's message or what happens to him. The next thing we read is that a mysterious figure called the angel of the Lord visits Gideon. We read that account beginning in verse 11. We read it earlier. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, this character, the angel of the Lord, appears throughout the Old Testament. Over and over again, we see his presence. Scholars are often divided over who the angel of the Lord is. Is he an angel 
or is he actually something more? Many scholars believe that the angel of the Lord is actually what is called a theophany. In other words, it's when God appears in the physical realm. You'll notice that several times in this encounter that we read just a moment ago, the Lord said to him, the Lord said to him. And so it would seem that it was indeed the Lord who was speaking with Gideon under that oak tree by the winepress. Keller takes this theophany view, and I agree. If that's the case, then God first sends a prophet to his people, but then eventually he decides to come down himself. So what eventually initiates change in Gideon's life and in the lives of the Israelites? It's God's presence. In the midst of their suffering, he shows up. While Gideon is literally in a pit hiding, God arrives and takes a seat. He greets Gideon saying, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. God tells Gideon exactly what he needs to hear. He tells him, I'm with you and you've got this. I'm with you and you've got this. You might not feel like a mighty warrior, but you are created in my image and I'll be with you every step of the way. Those sound like the words of a good parent to a frightened child. Today we need to be reminded of those truths as well. Despite our cowardice and our idolatry, God is still with us. We may be trapped in prisons of our own making, but He is still there, and He is bound and determined to set us free. He has not given up on us, and He won't that is the gospel. 2,000 years ago, Jesus also visited an unrepentant people living in fear and oppression. He came to rescue those people, not from the Romans, but from themselves. He entered into their suffering, and He laid down His life to set them and us free. Let's take one moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this entire story of Gideon, and we thank You that though it is about him, it's actually more about you. It's about you being a God who loves us. It's about you being a God who responds to our half-hearted cries for help. Father, this story of Gideon reminds us that despite our unfaithful worship, that you still forgive us. Father, it's a story that reminds us that even though we are fearful and insecure, that you came to be with us and that you've come to rescue us, and you even remind us not only of who you are, but who we are, Father, that we are created in your image. Therefore, Father, we are endowed with more glory and honor than we realize. And so, Father, it's because we are created in your image, and it's because of your love and your grace that you desire to set us free from our oppression and from our brokenness and from our faithlessness. Father, please do so. We pray all these things. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.